Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Welcome back to Article 2 in Week 7 on Evaluation of Female Pelvic Floor Muscle Function and Strength. This was written by Carrie Bowe and Margaret Sherburn. So we as practicing clinicians know that evaluation of pelvic floor muscle function and strength is necessary for one, being able to teach and give feedback regarding a patient's ability to contract the pelvic floor muscle, as well as two, in order to document changes in pelvic floor muscle function and strength throughout our intervention and treatments. So the aim of this article is just to give an overview of methods in order to assess that pelvic floor muscle function and strength, as well as to discuss the general responsiveness reliability, and validity of data obtained with the methods available for clinical practice and research today. So palpation, visual observation, electromyography, ultrasound, and MRI are all different measures of pelvic floor muscle function and strength, but they also measure different aspects of that function. I think we can all agree that vaginal palpation for us is the standard when assessing the ability to contract the pelvic floor muscle. However, ultrasound and MRI seem to be more objective measurements of the actual lifting aspect of the pelvic floor muscles. So imaging techniques may become more cl- important clinical tools in future physical therapist practice and as well as research in order to measure both the pathophysiology and the impairment of pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. But as of this article, there was not an established reliability or validity for these. The ICS definition of urinary incontinence is the complaint of any involuntary leaking of urine. So this affects women more than men, and the prevalence being between 9 and 72% of women between the ages of 17 to 79, and that is both a very broad range of age and percentile. So the most common type of urinary incontinence in women is stress urinary incontinence, and that's defined as the complaint of involuntary leaking on effort or exertion, or on sneezing or coughing. And the inability for women to perform activities like this that would require exertion would also cause an increased likelihood of medical conditions like osteoporosis, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, coronary heart disease, breast and colon cancer, and depression and anxiety. So I think it's safe to say that managing SUI is kind of important. Now, we know that the pelvic floor muscles form the floor of the pelvic basin, and it helps to maintain continence by actively supporting the pelvic organs and closing the pelvic openings with their anterior and their cephalid action when contracting. Although the deep and the superficial layers of the pelvic floor comprise different anatomical structures, muscles, and innervation, clinically they're going to work as a functional unit. So the pelvic floor muscles normally contract simultaneously as a mass contraction. And that contraction of the pelvic floor includes a squeezing effect around the opening of the pelvis, as well as an upward lift. In people without urinary incontinence, those pelvic floor muscles are going to contract simultaneously with or before the increase in abdominal pressure as an unconscious, automatic co-contraction. MRI studies have demonstrated that during a voluntary contraction, the coccyx is actually kind of moved ventrally towards that pubic symphysis, so that would demonstrate that pelvic floor muscle contraction concentrically. 
And then submaximal pelvic floor muscle contractions can be performed as an isolated contraction, but a maximum pelvic floor muscle contraction doesn't seem to be possible without a co-contraction of the abdominal muscles. And we're thinking specifically of that transverse abdominis and the internal oblique muscles. And I thought that was really interesting. So for a maximal contraction, you're going to want to get in a co-contraction of different muscle groups. Um, So clinically, I think that that's important. The pelvic floor muscles are one of the many factors contributing to the urethral closure mechanism for continence as well. And then there's other important pelvic factors for continence, like the contraction of the smooth and those striated muscles within the urethral wall, having a patent vascular plexi, and having intact ligaments and fascia supporting the bladder and their urethra in their optimal position during an increase in abdominal pressure. So we can kind of imagine that if factors other than the function of the pelvic floor muscles are the cause of incontinence, so thinking urethral ligaments are totally ruptured during childbirth, pelvic floor muscle training can be unsuccessful. Muscle strength can be defined as the maximal force that a muscle can generate and is often referred to as the weight the muscle can lift once or the one rep max. And then this article touches a bit more on the ICF classification system, that International Classification of Functioning, Disability, and Health. If this topic hasn't been dusted off for you since PT school, we're going to use an example of urinary incontinence just to kind of reframe that. So according to this system, the causes of a non-optimally functioning pelvic floor, so muscle and nerve damage after vaginal birth, for example, can be classified as the pathophysiological component. And then a non-functioning pelvic floor, so that individual having a reduced force generation, they have poor timing or poor coordination, that's going to be the impairment component. And then the actual leaking is going to be the disability. So then how it affects the woman's quality of life and her participation in fitness activities is an activity and participation component. One of the researchers that we've met before, Delancey, has suggested that cure rates after pelvic floor muscle training could be even higher than shown so far if treatment could be based on a better understanding of the pathophysiology associated with the incontinence symptoms in individual patients. So then this article is going to go more into depth on the overview of evaluation methods that are available in order to measure pelvic floor muscle function and strength with some comparison and contrast between them. For the simple purposes of the article, pelvic floor muscle function is defined as an ability to perform a correct contraction, meaning that squeeze around the pelvic openings and an inward movement or a lift of the pelvic floor. And then pelvic floor muscle strength is defined as that maximum voluntary contraction, meaning that a person attempts to recruit as many fibers as possible for the purpose of developing force. The importance of finding out the best way of measuring a contraction is pretty obvious if you are currently practicing pelvic PT, as several studies have shown that more than 30% of women do not contract their pelvic floor muscles correctly at their first consultation, even with an individual instruction. So let's just stop prescribing cubicles without an actual vaginal assessment and letting people squeeze every other muscle but their pelvic floor and calling it pelvic floor PT. Another importance of measuring and ensuring contraction is to guide whether the treatment is making changes to the tissues being strengthened and coordinating. In an intervention study evaluating the effect of pelvic floor muscle training, the training is the independent variable meant to cause a change in the dependent variable, which would be SUI. 
If we can't gauge any beginning versus ending strength or coordination within that treatment, we also can't determine if there's any other pathologies such as neuropathy or reassess the effects of differences in dosing, so intensity, frequency, and duration changes. So then let's get into the methods for measurement tools to evaluate these muscles. Methods for evaluating pelvic floor muscle function and strength can be categorized as one, methods for measurement of ability to contract, so clinical observation, vaginal palpation, ultrasound, MRI, electromyography, and then two, the measures to quantify that strength. So we're going to think the manual muscle test by vaginal palpation, manometry, dynamometry, things like cones even. And then those methods are going to measure different aspects of pelvic floor muscle activity, that anterior encephalod movement, squeeze pressure, and electrical activity. And then all of these methods have their place in a physical therapy evaluation, but also all of them have their limitations. Observation of a correct pelvic floor muscle contraction can be done clinically by ultrasound or with dynamic MRI. So obviously, to be certain, more than an external observation of the perineal tissues should be done. Vaginal palpation is a technique currently used by most PTs that I know of to evaluate a correct pelvic floor muscle contraction, and the first described by Kegel as a method to evaluate pelvic floor muscle function. Although I do know a lot of people who are starting to use a lot more ultrasound, which I think is super interesting, and I'm excited to see if more hospital systems and... um, Businesses will buy those to use as a pelvic floor muscle assessment. And then we're just going to remember that Kegel developed the perinometer, which is a pressure manometer, which measures the ability of the pelvic floor muscle to develop a vaginal squeeze pressure. And you should Google it if you haven't seen one before. It's, it's kind of interesting to see. So since Kegel first described the vaginal palpation as a method to evaluate pelvic floor muscle function, more than 25 different vaginal palpation methods have since been developed. And of note, there's really been no systematic research to determine the best method of vaginal palpation in order to assess the ability to contract. So the authors go on to discuss that this might be because vaginal palpation is really used only to determine qualitatively whether or not there even is a muscle contraction. So now into quantification of muscle strength. So how do we measure it? Measurement of squeeze pressure is most commonly used in order to measure pelvic floor muscle maximum strength and endurance. So this is where we're asking the patient to contract the pelvic floor muscles as strong as possible, that maximum strength, and then to sustain a contraction, their endurance, or repeat as many contractions as possible, those quick flick endurance. And then that measurement can be done in the urethra, vagina, or rectum if we're using manual muscle testing with pressure manometry or dynamometry, as well as vaginal palpation. For manual muscle testing, we're going to remember Laycock. He was the one who developed that modified Oxford grading system to measure pelvic floor muscle strength using vaginal palpation of the pelvic floor muscles. This is a six-point scale, zero being no contraction, one being a flicker, two being weak, three being moderate four being good with a lift, and five being strong with a lift. So it's a positive of that system is that it's simple to use and it doesn't require expensive equipment. So then Carrie Bow and another researcher, Finnick Hagen, questioned the responsiveness of that scale because they didn't think the scale could differentiate among weak, moderate, good, or strong contractions when they compared measurements with measurements of a vaginal squeeze pressure using a vaginal balloon connected to a fiber optic microtrip pressure transducer. And that was in a study of 20 female PT students. I can't imagine signing up for that. (laughs) 
So then another researcher confirmed these findings, showing that digital palpation categories didn't correspond with measurement of a dynamometer. The results from studies evaluating intratester and intertester reliability of vaginal palpation strength measurements are also pretty conflicting. So the big picture general conclusion was found to be that pelvic floor lift was the most reliably tested with palpation and that all other measures of muscle function were going to be better tested with EMG. So then another form of measurement is going to be manometry. So Kegel used a vaginal pressure device connected to a manometer, the perineometer, showing the pressure in millimeters of mercury as a pressure of pelvic floor muscle strength. And then remember that that term, perineometer, is somewhat misleading because the pressure-sensitive region of the probe of the manometer is not placed at the perineum, but in the vagina at the level of the levator ani muscles. So then of the three pelvic canals, measurement across the urethra has the best face and content validity for measuring the closed pressure caused by the force of muscle contraction. And this is the best location where the increased pressure created by the muscle contraction is required. But because of the risk of infection and the lack of equipment availability in most PT clinics, this method is really mostly used for research purposes. And then rectal pressure may not be a valid measure of the pelvic floor muscles in relation to urinary incontinence because this measure also includes the contraction of that anal sphincter muscle. So it makes sense why we use vaginal squeeze pressure most often clinically. A common reliability and validity problem is the placement of the pressure transducer in the urethra, vagina, or rectum. So Kegel actually suggested that the pelvic floor muscles were located in the distal third of the vagina, and Bo found that most women had the highest pressure rise when the middle of the balloon was placed 3.5 centimeters inside the introitus of the vagina. So obviously there's going to be a lot of anatomical individual differences found from patient to patient, but this is just a research discussion. And then some research have shown that straining is a common error when women attempt to contract their pelvic floor muscle, and then that's going to create an invalid measurement. I'm sure we're all familiar with that patient. But since a correct contraction involves an observable inward movement of the perineum or of the instrument, and straining creates a downward movement, some authors are going to suggest that a valid measurement can be ensured by simultaneous observation of the inward movement of the perineum. Some researchers have also tried to avoid that co-contraction of the abdominal muscles interfering with measurement of pelvic floor muscle strength. However, a ton of researchers have shown that there is a co-contraction of the abdominal muscles, that lower transverse abdominis and that internal oblique, during attempts of a correct maximal contraction, so that's going to mean that a normal co-contraction of the lower abdominal wall should probably be taught. One researcher allowed an increase of abdominal pressure of 5 millimeters of mercury only to ensure the least abdominal pressure interference with the measurement results. Bo, though, used a more clinically useful method of standardizing the test by not allowing any movement of the pelvis during measurement. I think it's also important to note that contraction of other muscles like the hip adductors, external rotators, gluteals, also is going to alter that intravaginal pressure measurement. So it was found with concentric needle EMG in women without urinary incontinence that contraction of these other muscles increased the muscle activity in both the striated urethral wall muscle and the pelvic floor muscles. However, This gross motor pattern is not really the normal neuromotor action of the pelvic floor and that lower transverse abdominis muscles, so that's why they typically discourage it. They then go into the variability of squeeze pressures within different EMG apparatuses, so do different sizes give different results or alter that muscle function? 
And there's kind of a parallel discussion on both the optimum diameter of vaginal devices and whether one or two fingers should be used for vaginal palpation. So one comment is that the urogenital hiatus can be markedly widened in some women and using one or two fingers to palpate will depend on the width of that hiatus. The authors also don't know whether a wide diameter vaginal device or a two-finger palpation actually stretches the pelvic floor, therefore it would inhibit its activity, or conversely, it might increase its activity by providing a firm proprioceptive feedback. The article then dives into the reliability of squeeze pressure within the same and a different skilled researcher. They considered things like fullness of the bladder, time of day, the actual day, if it's during menses, if they're stressed, things like that. And all in all, they didn't really find a difference. So big picture, vaginal squeeze pressure is a clinically useful measurement technique when used with careful instructions to the patient and there's a visual observation of the perineum by the physical therapist. So moving on to a different measuring system of the pelvic floor muscle strength, the dynamometer. I just want to say the contraption in this article, which is the dynamometric spectrum, looks a little medieval to me. I likely would be out of this research study if that was rolled into the room. So anyways, Samson L. et al. were the first to report on the use of the dynamometric speculum to measure the pelvic floor muscle strength. And this dynamometry measures the dorsoventral muscle force in newtons directly. So far, no report of responsiveness, reliability, or validity has been published on this apparatus. The article then goes into different types of dynamometers as well, the technology changes, etc. But I think the main take-home point on dynamometers is not that there are new changes to them and there's some with higher reliability. What struck me is the major disadvantage of the dynamometric speculums in that they share with most tools for measuring that pelvic floor muscle strength. And that disadvantage being that they only measure the squeeze and not the lift. So also clinical experience has shown that they have the same disadvantage as many manometers in that the force measured by the dynamometer also can be affected by intra-abdominal pressure rises or contractions of other muscle groups like the adductors and the gluteal muscles. Also, dynamometer, I keep saying dynamometer sometimes, so if I said dynamometer in this, I'm really sorry. It's dynamometer. Anyways, we're going to move on to easier things to say like vaginal weights and cones, and they were developed in 1985. So the cones were meant to be both a measuring tool and a training method. The original set of cones consisted of nine weights with equal volume, but with an increasing weight from 20 to 100 grams. So in these newer versions, there's packages of three or five cones that you'll see more commonly, and we know that they come in differing sizes and shapes. So the heaviest weight that a woman can hold for one minute without voluntarily contracting the pelvic floor muscle is termed the resting pelvic floor muscle strength or their passive pelvic floor muscle strength. And the weight that can be held for one minute with voluntary contraction is termed active pelvic floor muscle strength. So no studies have been found that have addressed interrater or interrater reliability or placement of the cone within the vagina in relation to the pelvic floor muscle. One researcher applied wire EMG within the pelvic floor and showed that insertion of the cone did increase the overall motor unit activity. Another study that I thought was kind of interesting had a result finding that 20% of women who had a low palpation score and a low vaginal pressure measurement, despite the fact that they could retain the heaviest cone. Radiography showed that the cone was resting on the coccyx in some women, and then you can imagine that these women were also using accessory muscles to retrain as well. Another study found that there was only a weak correlation between 
maximal pelvic floor muscle contraction force, and the ability to hold the cone. So I think it's fair to say more research before we encourage vaginal weights or cones. And there may be some out there, to be honest, I truly haven't double checked as I don't really use intravaginal weights in my practice very often. But if that's someone's goal and they're coming in with a set, I'm probably going to teach them how to use it. Now onto the measurement of the lift. Ultrasound and MRI are newer technologies where the actual lift inside the pelvis can be seen. What's positive about them is that these methods yield data with strong face and content validity, and both perineal and transabdominal applications of ultrasound have been tested for reliability. Pelvic floor muscle location, volume, and anatomy can be measured with ultrasound and MRI, and one researcher found that ultrasound yielded valid and reliable measurements of skeletal muscle size under controlled conditions. However, they also identified fat, fascia orientation, muscle shape, and pathology as confounding factors. As with everything, more research would probably be helpful. One point of discussion is whether the measurement of the lift is a measure of strength. Is lifting through a large distance a measure of greater pelvic floor muscle force, or would that indicate a stretched or ruptured fascia within the pelvic floor muscle that has a lift at a greater distance? So that would mean a large displacement may not be a sign of great strength. And one researcher found that there was a downward movement of the pelvic floor muscle during coughing, even in women without urinary incontinence, and a large lift during voluntary contraction has been shown in women without urinary incontinence. So just some food for thought. Okay, let's get into the discussion and then we get some take-home points. So pelvic floor muscle function is not an easy assessment. There's really no single method that has been found perfect measurements for both elevation and compression. Skill and clinical experience, therefore, is going to play an important role in determining the reliability and the validity of the results now as well as in the future. So if you were Starting to doubt your importance with all these measurement tools, just know that you're one of the most important tools. They then discuss that in the future, ultrasound may overtake the role of clinical observation and could also serve as biofeedback and a teaching tool. And I think I see this the most right now in pediatric pelvic floor PT and courses that I'm taking, that it seems to be a really effective tool. Another piece of the puzzle for stress urinary incontinence, though, is that whether the muscle action observed by clinical observation or ultrasound is sufficiently strong enough to increase urethral close pressure and can only be measured by urodynamic assessment in the urethra and the bladder. One researcher found that although contracting correctly, only 50% of subjects who were continent were able to voluntarily contract the pelvic floor muscle with enough force to increase urethral pressure. Also, because all increases in abdominal pressure will affect urethral, vaginal, and rectal pressures, squeeze pressure can't be used alone. So we're interested in that upward lift that can be visualized through the perineum as well. Muscle strength measurement may be considered an indirect measure of pelvic floor muscle function in real life activity. We know that women with no leakage do not contract voluntarily before coughing or jumping. Their pelvic floor muscle contraction is considered to be an autonomic, co-contraction that occurs as a quick and a strong activation as noted by an intact neural system. Other important factors for a quick and a strong contraction are the location of the pelvic floor within the pelvis, the muscle bulk, and having intact connective tissue. A stretched or a weak pelvic floor may be positioned lower within the pelvis compared to a well-trained or non-injured pelvic floor. 
The time for stretched muscles to reach an optimal contraction may be too slow to be effective in preventing descent against increased abdominal pressure, like a sneeze. So thereby, that's going to allow leaking to happen. All in all, to date, pelvic floor muscle function and strength seem to be best measured by a combination of observation, vaginal palpation, and urethral or vaginal squeeze pressures. So let's get to the take-home points. Pelvic floor muscle palpation is the recommended technique for use by the PT about correctness of contraction. Consider that standardization of one to two finger use, position, instructions, etc. Ultrasound applied at the perineum and particularly suprapubically is a non-invasive method and likely to be an important tool in the future for PTs to assess correctness of that pelvic floor and non-invasive being the highlight there. Measurements of vaginal squeeze pressure is kind of difficult and clinical skills and experience are important factors in achieving reproducible and valid results. So remember the importance of visualization of inward movement. The use of dynamometers may be a future valid, reliable, and responsive method of measuring pelvic floor muscle force. Big picture, there's no single measurement tool that's going to give a full picture of pelvic floor muscle strength and function. To date, there's no measurement tools with a demonstrated responsiveness, reliability, validity that are capable of measuring the automatic action of the pelvic floor in real-life situations as a response to increased abdominal pressure. So as PTs, let's just stay aware of advantages and disadvantages of current and upcoming technologies in order to become less reliant on manual palpation skills alone. So that was a pretty hefty article, but week seven is the week of hefty articles. So thanks for sticking with me. Just as another side note and a plug, if you have not yet purchased a MedBridge annual subscription, please consider using the code PRRP for Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast in order to help me keep this podcast relatively low or no cost. So I appreciate your reviews, your ratings, and if anybody needs a MedBridge code, please feel free to use PRRP. I really liked using those courses for the osteoporosis, female athlete, lymphedema, all that fun stuff. So next up is another and even longer article by Abrams in 2010. It's actually the fourth international consultation on continence recommendations regarding the evaluation and treatment of urinary incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, and fecal incontinence. And it is hefty. So thank you for listening. See you next time.